My global IQ is 109. Sinto si mocham hai moibong. 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 Sinto si as well as to what we refer to broadly as globalization. Yes, Sebastian Malapi is the Paul A. Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also a contributing columnist for the Washington Post. His most recent book is The Man Who Knew the Life and Time of Alan Greenspan, certainly timely. Uh, Sebastian, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks so much. Good to be with you, Jim. Sebastian, uh, we all woke up this morning with quite a surprise that your, your prime minister and also the health secretary have succumbed to the virus. What's been the response to that uh, throughout your country? Well, I think there's a sense that it's going to be business as usual as much as possible. The nature of cabinet government in the UK means that you do have a sense of collective responsibility for decisions. It's not quite so, uh, it is not presidential unlike the US system. So I think that makes it a little easier to take. The other thing about past two or three weeks here in the UK has been that every time the Prime Minister Boris Johnson appeared on TV, and for quite a while he was doing it every day, he would be flanked by uh, the two top scientists in the government, the Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Science Officer. And so there's been a sense from the beginning that this is a team effort uh, it's led by the scientists, by the experts. Ironically, during Brexit, Boris Johnson was saying, uh, and his, his uh, close colleague, uh, Michael Gove, who is um, the sort of second most powerful politician in the cabinet, they were saying, this country's had enough of experts with respect to uh, negative predictions about the economic impact of doing Brexit. But now that we have a pandemic, uh, this country can't get enough of experts. There are experts on the uh, news every day. And I think there's a sense that um, this is a team, the public health policies will go on and it's, uh, so long as the symptoms aren't too serious for the prime minister, it's, it's not a significant problem. We've seen in this country too, that uh, our leader, President Trump, of course, has not really followed social distancing. And we all worry that when he's standing there with uh, scientists that, you, that they could all be, uh, self-quarantine at a, at a later point. It's so important, I think, for our leaders to show an example. Yes, I was going to say there was a moment which uh, Boris Johnson was criticized for when he was asked about Mother's Day. And he, say, he was asked, you know, would, you, would he be going to visit his mother? And of course, his own government's guidance was that precisely you should not go face to face to see your uh, aged mother uh, when you're trying to self-quarantine. You should Skype or FaceTime or whatever. And he fluffed that one. Um, it's a good thing that he did end up Skyping her in retrospect now that he's tested positive. So uh, today, I, I assume and, and that the US Congress will have a successful vote on this massive relief bill. Um, I'm sure you've been following it extremely closely. Is it enough? And what do you think about the actual structure of it? Is it going to go into the right areas? You know, I think um, the baseline for this uh, action is the what was learned after the 2008 crisis, um, when there was a fiscal response, but it took a little while to get it going, and it was widely deemed in retrospect to have been too small. 
Uh, this time you've got a much bigger response because their lessons have been absorbed. And there is an attempt to drive assistance, um, not just to banks and so forth, but to regular households. Um, I haven't had time to digest all the detail, I'm afraid, Jim, but I, I get the sense that this is going to be, you know, a pretty broad ranging effort um, to, to put spending power in the pockets of people who, uh, who need it. I mean, one thing which I think is different in the US than the crisis response you see fiscally in Europe is that my understanding is that the US uh, assistance is in the form of kind of cash if you lose work rather than cash to keep your work. Um, in, in some of the European responses, there's been more of an effort to structure the assistance so that companies that might have been letting workers go won't. They'll kind of freeze them in place so that when the virus goes, um, those relationships between employers and employees have not been disrupted. I read about that, that that's the model followed in Germany and, and, and France. Is, is that what's happening in the UK as well? Yeah. Um, so, for example, um, there's a, a promise that 80% of the salaries of uh, workers who would otherwise be laid off would be covered by the government. Um, and, um, you know, there's obviously a definitional challenge about how you ascertain which workers might have been laid off. Um, but um, if companies can show that their profits have been, you know, their, their revenues have been squeezed to zero by this, which is of course true for a lot of companies, um, then they are eligible for this kind of assistance. And so if you are running a retail operation, for example, and you were unable to retain all the people working in your shops, you can now retain them because the government's gonna pay their salaries for you. And I gather that would make it, in a sense, easier, I presume, to reopen to re-stimulate the economy because you haven't lost employees who may be going to another uh, in another place if they can find the job somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, it's, it's a balance, right? In a normal kind of downturn, you might want uh, workers in a company that's particularly affected um, to be laid off in order that they should then go get jobs in some other sector of the economy that is much less affected. But when you've got something like uh, coronavirus, so many different sectors have been shut down essentially by a government decision to tell people to stay at home. Um, that that kind of normal argument in favor of um, frictional unemployment doesn't apply anymore. Tell us how this is different, the impact on the economy from say 2008, both the dramatic impact that it's having and how we come out of it. Well, I think the short term blow from coronavirus is going to be bigger um, than it was uh, in the case of the 2008 financial shock. You're seeing that in the um, spike in the number of unemployment claims in the US, the incredible fall in industrial production uh, uh, and in China in the first two months of this year. Um, this is really a, an extreme sudden stop. Um, and so I think, you know, we're talking about collapses of GDP 10% or more year on year in, in the advanced economies 
in the second quarter of this year. So it's a very steep um, downward spike. But the good news is that if uh, we get to a point in terms of the epidemiology and the public health advice where people can go back to work, then companies can resume business and it won't be like 2008 in the good way. What I mean is that there won't be a debt overhang. Um, one of the big problems in 08 was that the problem originated in the financial system because real estate prices had collapsed and therefore real estate linked financial instruments had collapsed in value. And so people's assets were suddenly half of what they thought. And that meant that there were ongoing weaknesses in the balance sheet, which inhibited spending and investment by consumers and companies. In theory, in this case, if the government can backstop the private sector during the shock for let's say three months or six months, at the end of that, um, you go back to where you were and there is no big debt on your balance sheet. And in fact, you might even have some companies which accelerate their sales because the folks who didn't go out and buy the iPhone during the shutdown, um, now there's all of a sudden a bunch of pent up demand and maybe the economy could accelerate uh, out, of the, out of the downturn. So you have a, a potential for a V-shaped um, recession and then recovery, very, very sharp on the downturn, hopefully fairly abrupt and steep on the upturn as well. We can certainly hope for that. How has Brexit impacted that the, the resources that the UK might have had access to, um, as well as, I might add, its overall handling of the pandemic? Well, one particular uh, controversy around the handling of the pandemic has to do with um, ventilators. Um, the European Union um, went as a group to try to purchase additional ventilator machines, which as you know, are a kind of key choke point in the response to this. Uh, your death rate is significantly affected by the proportion of serious cases which can be treated and to treat people who need ventilators and these are in short supply. So the European Union went off to buy some more and uh, the British government was not part of that um, joint procurement effort. And there was a response from London saying, oh, they lost the email, which had invited them to take part in this procurement. And that's now today being rubbished by officials in Brussels. So that's one specific um, uh, fight, uh, kind of domestic argument in British politics around um, the UK's relationship with Europe. Arguably, if the UK had been on better, closer terms with its friends in Brussels, uh, it would have been uh, able to purchase some extra machines. But, you know, I think going back to the other part of your question, which is whether uh, Brexit has affected the ability of the UK to respond, I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference. And the reason is that um, although the economy is in less good shape than it would have been, and although therefore tax revenues are a bit lower and the ability of the government to spend might be slightly lower, that effect is swamped by the willingness of the government essentially to borrow. And so at least in the short term, there is almost unlimited uh, resources that the government's willing to throw at uh, pandemic response because it's decided that in a world of extremely low interest rates, government debt is no longer such a worry. And Jim, I think this is a, a big question that 
we don't yet know the answer to, and I debate this with colleagues of mine at the Council of Foreign Relations. Um, when we come out of this episode, will the idea that throwing uh, budget resources um, without worrying about the, the national debt, is that something you can get away with? Or does that turn out to have a big sting in the tail economically? And uh, if you think that the, the lesson from 2008 was that central banks could print enormous amounts of money to do quantitative easing, and yet the penalty that was predicted in terms of inflation never materialized. So too, it might be that in this case, governments can borrow extraordinary amounts of money, increase the national debt, but because the interest rates are low, the cost of servicing that debt remains low, and they get away with it. Um, I'm sure that won't work in Argentina, right? Because in, in developing economies with um, weak reputations in financial markets, a, a government that borrows too much is going to be punished with inflation and a collapsing currency. Um, but in the richer world, and certainly in the United States, which has the privilege of issuing the world's reserve currency in the form of the dollar, um, it might work. Um, to, to worry very little about the national debt, at least in a sort of two to three year horizon. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Well, let's move now to the, the role that the Federal Reserve has played. As we well remember, on March 15th, a Sunday no less, uh, the Federal Reserve lowered the target rate uh, for the federal funds rate to 0 to 0.25%. I mean, just amazing. And then a few days later, it established a special commercial paper funding facility. What else is in its toolbox? Well, you know, as you've indicated, um, interest rates have already been cut to pretty much uh, zero. And experience in places like Japan um, and the European uh, currency area um, with the European Central Bank is that you can cut um, the policy rate below zero a tiny bit, but really not, not a meaningful amount because if you cut too much, then uh, you're basically saying to individuals that if they park their money in a bank account, uh, they will pay the bank to look after their money. And if that penalty becomes too big, folks are just gonna pull their money out and take cash and put it in their mattress. So um, you can't push the interest rate negative uh, very far. Therefore, basically, classic monetary policy is exhausted. Um, the second tool is um, quantitative easing, and we've seen a huge increase in that from the Fed uh, in the last week or two. Um, in fact, it's, I, I looked up some numbers recently, the amount of quantitative easing that was gonna be done in one week in March uh, this year exceeds an entire eight month program of quantitative easing in around 2010, 2011. So it's really a very significant quantity of money that's being created by the Fed. So again, 
there are diminishing marginal returns to that policy tool, so I don't think that can be used much more. So the last category of intervention from central banks is to take money essentially and don't just create it and let it filter through the system, but actually put it into the hands of people who need it. So I'm thinking about um, businesses that are under severe pressure because the corporate bond market is essentially closed. They cannot issue bonds, therefore they go to the bank, but the banks have limited capacity to create fresh loans. So the, the, the central bank, as the lender of last resort, needs to specifically to target corporations, whether these are large or small, that are, are not getting access to borrowing when they need it. And you could do that, for example, by um, going to the commercial banks and saying, um, the central bank will provide uh, money to you on condition that then this is passed through um, to the corporate sector. And then a similar kind of logic applies to households, where if you've got households which suddenly lose their source of revenue because the income earners are not able to go to work, um, they can't pay the mortgage, uh, they need mortgage relief. Uh, and again, um, the central bank could be part of a strategy of uh, channeling this targeted kind of relief um, to those who need it. So overall, would you give the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank uh, high marks? I would, yes. I think he, is, he, is, he responded quickly and with overwhelming force. Uh, I don't think that the Federal Reserve is going to be the main game uh, in the response, because I think that, as we've just seen, the, um, the Congress and the president uh, are on the point of uh, passing a very big fiscal stimulus. And that is a more direct way of getting money to people who need it. But I think the central bank can play a role. And uh, all the signs are that uh, Chairman Powell will do that. Let me bring in a question from Danielle Milan. Uh, can you speak about China's soft power in the world at this point and what China can do moving forward to assist the world in fighting this disease? And, and before you reply, I saw this article this morning in the Washington Post by uh, Karen DeYoung and others talking about essentially where the United States is sort of stepping back. Um, Elizabeth Braw of the London-based Royal United Services Institute said, in international crises, America has always been the country to which other countries have turned for leadership and to steer the ship. And now, which country is looking to the United States? No one. Yeah. I mean, China has, uh, is in the ironic position of being the country where the virus started, of being the country where the initial response was secretive and slow and badly handled, uh, to turning that around, um, managing apparently to uh, turn the tide on the virus domestically to the point where for some time now in Wuhan, they've, they've, they've found almost no new cases. I'm not sure I believe that data, but still, uh, the broad point that the um, progress has been made domestically against the disease, that does seem to be true. Um, and then by providing ventilators to Italy and making a few other um, sort of high profile interventions, China has been able to uh, appear as the sort of moral leader um, uh, in fighting a pandemic which ironically uh, grew out of China, and which maybe also has something to do with bad public health standards in 
animal markets in China where these kinds of virus make the jump between animals and humans. Um, so uh, the question I think is whether this apparent soft power um, victory that China is winning, whether that could be, you know, we're not through this thing by any means. And as China lifts restrictions uh, on its citizens and tells them to go back to work, uh, the danger of a second wave of infections must be uh, pretty high. And how China manages that second wave, uh, I think we don't know yet. And so uh, we don't know whether um, China will end up uh, looking like the soft power victor. You know, that's a good lead into this question that we have from Don Carroll. Have you seen a reasonable economic analysis of the cost benefit of shutting down most of the economy to reduce deaths, but postpone the point at which we have herd immunity? Which is something, of course, that Boris Johnson talked about in, at, at the outset of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, I have the, there's a very short answer is I haven't seen a good cost benefit, but I think the reason is that it's, it's almost impossible to do it. And the key thing you'd have to take a view on if you were trying to do that sort of study is let's suppose that you um, turn the tide on the virus as has been done in Wuhan through very strict social isolation. Uh, and that takes you, let's say two months. Uh, and at the end of two months or two to three months, um, you're able to slightly lift the, the, the lid off and let people um, go back to somewhat of a normal life. And then, you know, th then the question is what happens after that? In one scenario, uh, when you take the lid off, the virus comes back, the infection starts, you don't have herd immunity. And so you end up with repeated waves of the virus each time you clamp down, the virus is beaten back, you, then you lift the lid and it starts again. And at the end of this cycle of infection suppression, infection suppression, you haven't saved that many lives. In the end, most people have been infected. You end up with a herd immunity. It's just that it took you, you know, 15 or 18 months, uh, not the three months it might have taken you if you had done nothing and just allowed the um, virus to sweep through your population. Um, uh, so that, that's one scenario. But the other is that you take the three months, you beat the virus back, and in the meantime, uh, medical um, interventions are developed. Now, I'm not talking about a virus, which I think is not plausible on a three-month time frame. That's more like a year to 18 months. But I am talking about um, ordering many more test kits. If you have more test kits, you can plausibly do contact tracing where you isolate individuals and those they've come into contact with. Um, and that's a different way of fighting back the virus. And so, in other words, the, the, it's, it's worth doing this extreme isolation if you use that time to build up your medical arsenal. If you don't use that time to build up the medical arsenal, then it probably isn't worth it, to be honest. You're just delaying the disease toll and the death burden. You're not really ending it. And it just underscores the, the need to, as quickly as possible, find a, a vaccine. 
Scott Davies asks, do you think that certain industries will suffer to the point that they cannot recover? And if so, which industries are most likely to shrink and not recover? And anyway, you know, I'd add to that, uh, you know, you look at some of the large restaurant chains and you can imagine that they'll be able to bounce back, but smaller uh, restaurants owned by you know, one proprietor seems like it'll be very difficult for them. Well, so thinking about it in terms of sectors, um, I mean, I think it's plausible to talk about uh, some changes in consumer behavior that will turn out to be permanent. Um, we're doing this discussion um, through Zoom. Uh, I expect that Zoom uh, will be permanently more popular in the future than it would have been otherwise, because this is a crash course for all of us. We're all learning how to use Zoom. And now that we figured it out, maybe we're going to fly less to conferences a little bit um, and we won't use alternative means of, of that we might have used to get together so zoom is one example um, you know I, I think that sort of telemedicine um, is going to be used a lot in this crisis people don't want to go to the hospital or in fact in the uk where i am you're not allowed to go to your local doctor's office anymore because that would be to bring the infection in and uh, risk the, the um, health of the doctors that you need, so you communicate with the doctor on the telephone. And I think there'll be that that could also be a secular, sort of permanent, durable shift. Um, so there are a few things like that that one can think of where behavior might be permanently um, changed. Um, but I don't think it really is so radical as to lead me to foresee any actual sector to close down. There will still be people who want to go and stay in a hotel, get on an airplane, all that stuff is going to come back, you know, public health conditions allowing. Um, what, go ahead. I was just saying one, one last part of your question was whether the, um, you know, there would be individual proprietors of small family restaurants. And I think, yes, that depends on the government uh, support. If those people um, lose their businesses because they suddenly have no revenue, and the government does nothing to help them, then I could imagine that those individuals uh, would be so financially beaten back that they wouldn't be able to recover. But as you say, the bigger companies with deeper pockets are just going to come back because you know, they will have access to finance and it will make sense to bring them back because the basic demand for what they were providing is going to come back to normal. Neil Jacobs asks, should we be worried? Are you worried about a change in how the world views the US dollar in terms of being the world's reserve currency? No, I don't think so. I think the, the, the US dollar um, is like the English language. Um, it's you know very hard to unseat the incumbent leader because of network effects. The more people who use the English language, the more it's the natural language for kids in China to learn uh, or kids anywhere else. Uh, and so it is with the dollar. Dollars are used for transactions within countries where the money never passes through the United States, but um, that's the convenient sort of lingua franca of global finance. So I don't think that's changing. So let me ask you this question from uh, Thomas Kennelly. Will the US stimulus package fundamentally change the relationship between the US government and the private sector making it more similar to what we do see in Europe? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think this might be in the category of things where 
um, you know, behavior and attitudes do get changed in a durable fashion. Um, I think it's fair to say that through history, as crises have uh, faced the United States, the federal government has responded to those, I'm thinking mostly of uh, world wars, and in the process have increased their share of GDP. And, uh, and that's not been rolled back afterwards. Um, and so the Second World War was clearly, well, the combination of the Depression and the Second World War were clearly a step change in the size of, of government in the US. Um, and I think, uh, you, you know, it, 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 it might be the case that um, some of what uh, happens over the next months does lead to an increase in the share of government and GDP. I don't think if that's done cleverly, uh, strategically, um, it doesn't have to be bad. I mean, at, at, you know, just to take a, a, an example, which I think most of us would have no trouble agreeing with, you know, this does show that federally backed public health is pretty important. Uh, we have the CDC. Um, maybe the CDC needs to get a bit bigger. Um, maybe its test kits would have been better if it had had, I don't know what went wrong there, but um, so, so there, are, there are kind of federal functions that might need to be strengthened as a result of this, just like after 9-11, um, you know, Homeland Security was beefed up. I don't think it needs to sort of spread into saying that the government is going to, you know, direct um, the, the airlines or something. Um, but, um, uh, and I think that to the extent that the government moves into that kind of uh, field, one hopes that it will retreat afterwards. Right. The government has stopped the economy. The Federal Reserve has an unlimited balance sheet. Rather than haggling over the size of the relief, empower the Fed to print money to stabilize lost jobs. Once the pandemic ends, forgive the debt. Would that work? Well, I mean, you have almost a version of that happening anyway, which is to say the Fed is doing enormous quantitative easing. That means the Fed is going off and buying uh, a lot of government debt. Uh, the government debt, in turn, is financing things like this big stimulus. So basically, the Fed is, is creating money that's flowing through to the federal government, which is using that money to, uh, to spend on the stimulus. So we're kind of pretty much there. The last piece is, could you just cancel that debt at the end? Well, you know, whether the... Um, whether the uh, uh, U.S. Treasury owes money to the Fed when they're both bits of the government sort of comes out in the wash. I don't think it makes a big difference, actually, whether you formally cancel the debt. Um, but um, the constraint on that strategy traditionally is if you just print lots and lots of money and pump it out into the system, you'll have too much money face tracing too few goods, which means you'll get inflation. But in the last 10 years, the great mystery in the global economy is there hasn't been inflation, despite enormous quantities of uh, money creation. Uh, and so, so long as that inflation penalty doesn't materialize, it does appear to me that uh, governments can go a long way in doing what looks like economic alchemy, uh, Jim, you know, creating money out of thin air. It sounds crazy, but it appears to be working. 
I have time for one more question and it comes from Lee Jackson. If we knew that every five to 10 years in the future, there's likely to be a, a new highly contagious viral uh, eruption such as what we're seeing now, what should governments do differently in emergency and economic preparedness to not be inventing an ad hoc response? Is there a greater role or is there a role for multinational institutions to negotiate a set of voluntary preset protocols that might be followed at times like this? You know, personally, I think, um, you know, multinational institutions are, are useful. I wrote a book about the World Bank. Um, I've spent some of my journalistic career, you know, advocating in favor of multilateralism. But I do think that national uh, governments are really the main players in the world. And that's the level where I would hope to see lessons being learned, especially. It seems to me, you know, if you think about the strategic petroleum reserve, um, you know, created in the wake, I think, of the oil shocks of the 70s. Uh, this, I, may, I might be wrong about when they were created, but I, I, whether or not that's right, my, my point still stands, which is that there is a vulnerability to the nation from a sudden oil spike. So we have a strategic reserve. And what we need for viral threats is a strategic reserve of protective equipment for hospital workers and, 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 and doctors so that they don't have to wear the same face mask for hours on end. They can switch them out quickly as you're supposed to. They have protective gloves. That's the basic minimum. You want um, an ability to generate uh, a lot of test kits for the uh, new pathogen uh, very quickly. You want uh, standby quantities of uh, ventilators which turn out to be life-saving and quite hard to procure uh, rapidly uh, when you need them. So I think you know we need to think in terms of a of a of a reserve, a stockpile of, of the kind of medical equipment that we need, um, and then maybe um, you know to the extent that this can be squared with those civil liberties, uh, some way of doing contact tracing, um, because that is what made a difference in South Korea. And that is now the Chinese strategy. And it, it is, you know, if you don't want everybody to be socially isolated, then the alternative to, is to isolate selected individuals strategically. Uh, I think societies may come around to the idea that to isolate a small number of people is better than isolating everybody. And especially, I guess you're beginning to see a hint of that with what President Trump is proposing this county by county analysis. Right, exactly. Sebastian, thanks so much for joining us. I know the demands on your time and we've really appreciated it. These are certainly challenging times and we hope that all of you stay well. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Loper, Programs Coordinator at the World Affairs Council. If you like Global IQ, the best way to support it is by becoming a member of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Join today at dfwworld.org forward slash join or learn about a World Affairs Council in your community by visiting worldaffairscouncil.org.